Chapter Three of An English Girl's First Impressions of Burma. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Fullerton Samsell at CloneSofLangston.com. An English Girl's First Impressions of Burma by Beth Ellis. Chapter Three the road to mandalay quote by wordsworth i travelled among unknown men in lands beyond the sea quote by byron where the tints of the earth and the hues of the sky in colour though varied in beauty may vie the distance by rail from rangoon to mandalay is three hundred and eighty-six miles and it takes twenty-two hours to accomplish the journey trains like everything else in this leisurely country are not given to hurrying themselves husty husty always go husty is the motto for burma as an example of the unintelligible nature of the language i may explain that husty means slow it is a pleasant journey however for the carriages are most comfortable and the scenery through which the rail passes affords plenty of interest to a newcomer i enjoyed my journey therefore immensely i left rangoon about five o'clock in the afternoon well provided with books fruit and chocolates for the journey and under the protection of a hideous madresse ara i believe she was in reality a worthy old creature but she was exceedingly ugly so very unintelligible though most persistent in her efforts at conversation and so intolerably stupid that i could not feel much affection for her and i only consented to put up with her company as a protection against the thieves who haunt the various halting-places along the line ready to steal into carriages and carry away all the portable property of the traveller i had heard such blood-curdling stories of these train thieves that i should have felt quite nervous about undertaking the journey had i not fortunately disbelieved them i do not believe for an instant my aura would have been any real protection for whenever we stopped she was seized with an overpowering hunger and spent all of her time bargaining with the vendors of bananas huge red prawns decayed fish dried fruits cakes and other horrible articles who swarmed upon the stations these delicacies and others which she prevailed upon my tender heart to buy for her she wrapped up in a large red pocket handkerchief and hid under the seat what was their final fate i cannot pretend to say but for her sake i trust she didn't eat them she was a much-travelled lady and had visited many of the towns along the route and persisted in waking me up at all hours of the night to point out the houses where her various mensahibs had lived or the bungalows inhabited by the commissioners matters in which i was not at all interested she kept me awake with long rambling stories about her many relations stories which as they were told in the most vague and unintelligible pidgin english I found it very difficult to understand but the gist of all was that she was very old and very poor and she was sure i was a very kind and generous missy and would not fail to reward her handsomely for her services i failed to discover what these same services might be for beyond fanning me vigorously when i did not require it and at three o'clock in the morning procuring from somewhere an unpleasant mixture she called coffee and which i was obliged to throw secretly out of the window she did nothing except talk i suppose she was really no worse than the rest of her tribe and cannot be blamed for getting as much as she could out of her exceedingly innocent and easily humbugged missy at the first station at which we stopped 
I was much astonished to see all the natives on the platform come and kneel down in the humblest manner round the door of my carriage, and remain there chaconing and pouring forth polite speeches in Burmese until our train left the station. I have never been backward in my high opinion of my own importance, but I hardly expected the fame of my presence to have spread to this distant land, and felt considerably embarrassed, though of course highly gratified, by such unexpected tokens of respect. I received these attentions at every station with the most royal bows and smiles until, at last, on dismounting from the train at the dining station, I discovered that the carriage next to mine was occupied by a noble Shan chief and his retinue, and it was to him, not to my insignificant person, that all this homage was paid. I felt quite annoyed at the discovery. He was really such a hideous, yellow, dirty old man, and he sat at the window, surrounded by his wives and attendants, smoking grumpily and paying not the least attention to the flattering speech of his admirers, who must have been far more gratified by my gracious condescension. The chief stared at me a great deal when I passed his window to re-enter my carriage, and shortly after the train was again set in motion, he sent one of his wives to inspect me, possibly with a view to offering me a position among the number of his dusky spouses. She opened the door and stared at me for some time, taking not the slightest notice of my request that she would withdraw, until she had sufficiently examined me, when she retired as abruptly as she had appeared, and I lost no time in securing the door behind her. Evidently, her report was not satisfactory, for I have heard no more of the episode. Possibly, she reported that I looked bad-tempered, I certainly felt so. What a fascinating journey that was! During the first part of the route, the country is less interesting, consisting merely of flat stretches of paddy fields and low jungle scrub. But all this I passed through by night, when the soft moonlight lent a witching beauty to the scene. There is something so inexplicably beautiful about night in the east, so comparatively cool, so clear, so quiet, and yet so full of mysterious sound a little noiseless noise among the leaves born of the very sight that silence heaves the cloudless heavens sparkle with a myriad stars the moonlight seems brighter and more golden than elsewhere and the noisy weary worn old earth hides away her tinsel shams and gaudiness which the cruel sunlight so piteously exposes and appears grander and nobler under the night's kindly sway the scenery in upper burma is exceedingly fine the great rocky hills, each crowned with its pagoda, rise on all sides, stretching away into the distance till they have become only blue shadows. Everywhere are groves of bananas and palm trees, forests of teak and bamboo, and vast tracts of jungle attired in the gayest colors. The pagodas, mostly in a half-ruined condition, are far more numerous here than in lower Burma, and raise their white and golden heads from every towering cleft of rock and every mossy grove. As we neared Mandalay, we passed many groups of half-ruined shrines, images, and pagodas covered with moss and creeper, deserted by the human beings who erected them, and visited now only by the birds and other jungle folk, who build their nests and make their homes in the shade of the once gorgeous buildings. They look very picturesque, rising above the tangled undergrowth that surrounds them, but pitifully lonely. We stopped at a great number of stations en route. The platforms were always crowded with natives of every description, at all hours of the day and night, selling their wares, greeting their friends, or smoking contentedly, and viewing with complacency the busy scene. 
the natives of india with their fierce sullen faces frightened me the cunning chinese ever ready to drive a hard bargain amused but did not attract me but the merry friendly little burmese were a continual delight they swaggered up and down in their picturesque costumes smoking their huge cheroots the men regarding with self-satisfied and amused contempt the noisy chattering crowd of madresses and chinese the women coquetting in the most graceful and good-natured way with every one in turn when they had paid their devoirs to the old chief they would crowd round my carriage window offering their wares taking either my consent or refusal to be a purchaser as the greatest joke and laughing merrily at my vain attempts to understand them i fell in love with them on the spot they are such jolly people and such thorough gentlefolk it was very interesting in the early morning to watch the signs of awakening life in the many burmese villages through which we passed to see the caravans of bullock carts or mules setting out on their journey to the neighbouring town and the pretty little burmese girls coquetting with their admirers as they carried water from the well or chattering and whispering merrily together as they performed their toilet by the stream decking their hair with flowers and ribbons and donning their delicately coloured pink and green tamans here we met a procession of yellow-robed punjis and their followers marching through the village with their begging bowls to give the villagers an opportunity of performing the meritorious duty of feeding them there a procession of men women and children walking sedately towards the pagoda with offerings of fruit or flowers to contemplate the image of the mighty gautama to hear the reading of the word and to meditate upon the holy life now we passed a group of little punji pupils with their shaven crowns and yellow robes sitting solemnly round their teacher in the open-sided kyung we passed a jovial crew of merrymakers in their most brilliantly coloured costumes jogging along gaily behind their ambling bullocks to some pway or pagoda feast which they are already enjoying in anticipation and the strange part of it all is that nowhere does one see sorrow poverty or suffering outwardly at least all is bright and merry i suppose the burman must have his troubles like all other folk but if so he hides them extremely well under a cheerful countenance surely in no other inhabited country could we travel so far without beholding some sign of misery i think the great charm of burma lies in the happiness and brightness of its people their merriment is infectious and they make others happy by the mere sight of their contentment we arrived at mandalay about three o'clock in the afternoon the last few hours of the journey were most unpleasantly hot and i was very glad when we steamed into the station and i saw my brother-in-law who had descended from his mountain heights to meet me waiting on the platform the journey had been delightful in many ways but after being twenty-two hours boxed up in the railway carriage with a chattering aura it was a great relief to reach one's destination at last when i arrived in mandalay i was filled with an overwhelming gratitude towards mr rudyard kipling for his poem on the subject rangoon fascinating and interesting though it be is yet chiefly an anglo-indian town but mandalay though the palace and throne-room have been converted into a club though its pagodas and shrines have been desecrated by the feet of the aliens and though its bazaar has become a warehouse for the sale of birmingham and manchester imitations yet spite of all this former stronghold of the kings of burma still retains its ancient charm when i first experienced the fascination of this wonderful town my feelings were too deep for expression and i suffered as a soda-water bottle must suffer until the removal of the cork brings relief 
suddenly there flashed into my mind three lines of mr kipling's poem and as i wandered amid them spicy garlic smells the sunshine in the palm trees and the tinkly temple bells i relieved my feelings by repeating those wonderfully descriptive lines i was once again happy and i vowed an eternal gratitude to the author before the end of my two days stay in mandalay i began to look on him as my bitterest foe and to regard the publication of that poem as a personal injury the hotel in which we stayed was also occupied by a party of american globe-trotters in all probability they were delightful people as are most of their countrymen they were immensely popular among the native hawkers who swarmed upon the doorsteps and verandas and sold them manchester silks and glass rubies at enormous prices but we acquired a deeply rooted objection to them springing from their desire to live up to their surroundings we should have forgiven them had they confined themselves to eating eastern fruits and curries wearing flowering burmese silken dressing gowns and smattering their talk with burmese and hindustani words but these things did not satisfy them evidently they believed that they could only satisfactorily demonstrate their complete association with their surroundings by singing indefatigably morning noon and night that most unburmese song mandalay they sang it hour after hour during the whole of the two days we spent in the place in their bedrooms and about the town they hummed and whistled it during meals they quoted and recited it at night when we took our afternoon siesta they sang it boldly accompanying one another on the cracked piano and all joining in the chorus with a conscientious heartiness that did them credit we tossed sleepless on our couches wearied to death of this endless refrain that echoed through the house or if in a pause between the verses we fell asleep for a few seconds it was only to dream of a confused mixture of mulmain pagodas flying elephants and fishes piling teak till we were once again awakened by the uninteresting and eternally reiterated information that the dawn comes up like thunder out of china across the bay the only relief we enjoyed was that afforded by one member of the party who sang cheerfully on the banks of mandalay thereby displaying a vagueness of detail regarding the geographical peculiarities of the place which is so frequently though no doubt wrongly attributed to his nation and here i pause with the uncomfortable feeling that in writing my experiences of burma i ought to make some attempt to describe this far-famed city of mandalay the wonders of its palaces the richness of its pagodas the brilliancy of its silk bazaar and its other thousand charms but such a task is beyond me others may aspire to paint in glowing colors the fascinations of this royal town and the beauty of the wonderful buildings but in my modesty i refrain for to my great regret i saw little of them my stay in the town was too short and i was too weary after my journey to admit of much sight-seeing beyond a short drive through the delightful eastern streets and a hurried glimpse of the throne-room i saw nothing of the place and the only thing i clearly recollect is the moat which i admired immensely mistaking it for the far-famed irrawaddy therefore i will pass by mandalay with that silent awe which we always extend to the unknown and leave it to cleverer pens than mine to depict its charms i cannot sing of that i do not know especially nowadays when so many people do know and are quite ready to tell one so. End of chapter 3